Will you turn your Bibles to uh, John chapter 1? And uh, while you're turning that, I want to draw your attention to the flyers that were given out as Josh came and gave you these flyers. And I'm not sure if there are any who haven't received this. But I want to challenge you. I want to challenge you to talk to at least four families. Because I want you to understand that probably this may be the only opportunity you, you may have used to talk to someone about Jesus Christ or to invite them to the truth of the gospel. Uh, so this year is going to go very fast, and they're usually open to come for such things. And so I, I want to urge that if you call and they come, uh, we, we pray that God would use that evening to glorify himself, and the word would be taught, the gospel would be shared, and that souls would be saved. So the ball's in your court. All right, and I really want you to do that. At least four families, minimum, right? If you would do more, I think you'll have those uh, gold star in heaven or something like that, right? Saying that uh, the more people you bring, whatever, right? So John chapter 1, verse 1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. What I want to do is to bring to our attention Jesus Christ through the eyes of John. It is said that, uh, am I on? It is said that there are about 40 billion people who've lived on the face of this world since the beginning, uh, you know, since the earth began. And that the one question, the purpose of their life, the one question that really will decide the, their lives is what they will do with this person of Jesus Christ. Nothing else. Nothing else matters. No bank account, no careers, no whatever else. It's what you choose to do with this Jesus. And John brings this person, the Lord Jesus Christ, in such wonderful way that, um, that I was thrilled as I was uh, reading through this. Uh, Emily Post was an uh, etiquette expert. And somebody had written to her, and, and they asked this question. They said, you know, we had an invitation to dine at the White House. What is the correct pr procedure to say no to that invitation? How do I say no to the White House invitation because I'm previously engaged? And this is what Emily Post wrote. She said, an invitation to dine at the White House is a command, and it automatically cancels any other engagement. This is God's divine invitation, which cancels out every other thing that you hold important in your life. What you do with Jesus Christ, what you do with him in this life, is the most important decision that you can take. And so my prayer today is as we go very quickly through what John is presenting to us, we will understand that we'll be caught up by the glory of Jesus Christ about who he is, that our hearts would be so caught up that he be glorified in our midst. And so uh, you, you might ask, why John? And that's, that's what I want to cover, why John, right? Because there are four biographies about Jesus Christ. Uh, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And, and you know the focus of all the four are different. Matthew presents the Lord Jesus Christ as the king of the Jews. 
Mark presents the Lord Jesus Christ as the obedient servant. Luke presents Jesus Christ as the perfect man. And John presents the Lord Jesus Christ as the Son of God. So you have these biographies coming from different angles, and so therefore the readings are slightly different. But what I like about the gospel, it's not just it's like in a textbook form. It doesn't say, what are the three ways of knowing God? What are the ten steps to become a Christian? It talks about life. It's a narrative. And the challenge, therefore, is this. The challenge is that I read the life of Christ through these biographies, and as for myself, how does that impact me? How do I align my life to match his? What's involved? Are you with me on that? So that is what John, that is what those gospels are all about. But, you know, if you really catch about John, um, you see the, the, the common aspects of these gospels, there are at least 11 very common aspects in all these four gospels, especially towards the latter part. Uh, they all talk about the triumphal entry. They all talk about the Last Supper, about Gethsemane, about crucifixion, about the burial, about the resurrection. But I identified, there may be more, but I identified four that I want to talk to you about, the four unique things that appear in, in John's gospel. And as a result of that, what do we get out of that? Okay, so first I want to call it the personhood, the person of Jesus Christ, the person of Jesus Christ. Uh, John is the only one who, who has this use of I am's. He's the one who uses the I am. You know, between John's gospel and his writings till the revelation, he uses at least 27 times this phrase where Jesus says, I am, I am. You know, that's more than the other gospel writers combined. So what John is really trying to do is trying to narrow in about this person of Jesus Christ, the deity of Jesus Christ, and yet he offers much more. Okay? Second, when we talk about this I am, we need to understand what is, why, what's so great about this I am, you know, just because John has said, what does that mean? What does that really mean? What John does is he's putting uh, Jesus on trial, as it were, because there are questions the scribes ask, the Pharisees ask, the Sadducees ask about, about who are you? What, what are you? You know? And so those are the answers that he gets, and he, he presents these I am statements. But where is the first time we read that word I am? In Exodus 3, do you remember when, when Moses is confronted by that burning bush that doesn't, that doesn't burn up? And he says, who are you? And, 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 and the voice says, I am that I am. The Jews knew the use of that word I am is very exclusive. They would not use the word I am. It strikes terror in the hearts of enemies, and the sore, it's a source of confidence in the hearts of the saints. It's a great example when in the Garden of Gethsemane, I want you to picture that, right? I want you to say, this, my, the hour has come. And as he says that, Judas is coming with his band of soldiers. They got swords, and they got clubs, and they got sticks. And uh, Jesus says, who are you looking for? And they say, we're looking for Jesus of Nazareth. And what does Jesus say? I am he who you seek. The terror, because as he says that, they fall back. They fall back. This is Jesus Christ. But not just 
not just the power, but I want you to stay with me on the phrase of the phrase that he says, it is finished, the triumphal cry, the triumphal cry. He, the, the, the phrase that, that, that we read in John chapter 19 and verse 30, it is only John who mentions that. It's about that it is finished. The work that all the biographies of him in Matthew, Mark, and Luke is summed up in this, that he has finished the work. But it's not a victim's cry, it's a victor's cry. We know that when he says, he, he says, it is finished, the work is done. And so he presents to us who Jesus is. But not just the person, not just the power of the word I am, but not just the phrase that it is finished, but I also want you to understand the prophecy of his burial, which John presents, no one else. Because if you turn to John chapter 19, verse 40, John chapter 19, verse 40, they say, so they took the body of Jesus and bound it in linen cloth with the spices, as is the burial custom of the Jews as is the burial custom of the Jews. You need to stop there just for that brief moment and ask, like, what is John trying to tell me here? Because no one else, like I said, these are unique things which are not found in the other Gospels. John puts this detail in. Everybody else, all the other four Gospels, the three other Gospels mention burial, but it's only John who says that he was buried with vast quantities of the spices supplied by Nicodemus, Nicodemus and that he was buried as a, jo- as a Jew. Burial was important. It, uh, the burial of Jesus was honorable, it was important, it was unique. I want to touch on that very quickly so that we understand that. Okay? Why is even burial so important? All right? The first I want you to understand that it's very important for a Jew in the, um, in the Old Testament, if you read, so many times you will see the, 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 the phrase, and they were buried with the fathers. For a Jew to be buried with the fathers is very important because it's, it's a matter of honor. And so even Jacob, Jacob told Joseph to take him out of the, uh, Egypt and bury him in the land of his fathers. We read in Genesis chapter 47 verse 30. On the contrary, if they're not buried, this is what happens. We see the sign of God's judgment. Uh, one example is that of Jezebel, if you remember that. The, 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 the judgment upon her was that she would not be buried and that the, the dogs would actually lick her, lick her blood. So burial in itself for a Jew, the fact that a Jew needs to be buried is an extremely important thing. So we see that Jesus was buried. Let me also read to you from Ecclesiastes chapter 6, verse 3. It says, if a man fathers a hundred children and, 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 lie, and lives many years so that the days of his years are many, but his soul is not satisfied with life's good things, and he also has no burial, I say that a stillborn is better than he. So when the fact that Jesus was buried, there's something different. But the burial of Jesus was also unique. You see, I want, you to, I want to bring in a little extra uh, biblical um, uh, notations here, one of, one of which is a Roman practice, the Latin poet Horace. He writes to saying that Roman practice was to leave 
the body on the cross until it decayed. And he spoke about crucified slaves feeding crows on the cross. So the Romans really didn't want to bury you. They want, to, they want the body to be left on the cross so that every time people would see that, it's a reminder not to go against the Roman government. What about the Jewish practice? Anyone sentenced to death by the Sanhedrin were not buried in the sepulchres of their father. This Lightfoot says this. There are two burying places appointed by the council. One for those that were slain by the sword and strangled, and other for those that were stoned, but also were hanged and burned. They had no place in their father's burial. So what is John doing here? John is saying that Joseph of Arimathea, in the fact that he buried him in his own tomb, he was, Joseph was saying his family, Jesus' family, and that he gets the honorable burial. Stay with me as I, as I talk, as we continue on this thought, because another thing why burial is important, because one of the things that they would do is they would take this Jew or any person who was hung on the cross, they would just toss the person in Gehenna or would not be buried. Or they would have an unmarked grave. An unmarked grave for Jesus would not be very helpful because unless you know where the person is buried, how do you connect resurrection? And so I want you to understand, burial is so important in the understanding of the prophecy and the fulfillment of that. But there's another greater reason that you'll see from Philippians chapter 2. Now that's the passage that talks about the, uh, the humility of the Lord Jesus Christ. In Philippians chapter 2, verse 8 and 9, we read, And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Let me just do a quick detour on that. Even death on a cross is that it's an unacceptable thing for a Jew. You see, the, the cross was the form of punishment by the Romans. And to die on the cross was a very dishonorable uh, death. When the Jews cried, crucify him, crucify him. When, they, when we read earlier in John, he came to his own, his own received him not. And later in, in John, we see that crucify him. What the Jews were saying essentially is this. They're saying he came to his own, his own received him not. They say he's not the Messiah that we're waiting for. Not just that, they, by saying crucify him, the Jews were saying, forget the fact that he is not a Messiah. He's not even a Jew. He's not even one of us even the death on a cross. So that's the point to which Jesus goes, even the death on a cross. But immediately after that, it says, therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is about every name. Immediately after death, immediately after death, the burial becomes the point of his exaltation. It gets an honorable, uh, honorable burial. Isaiah 53, 9. And they made his grave with the wicked and with a rich man in his death. Which is a rich man in his death. The burial of Jesus. The burial of Jesus. So these four very unique 
things that you can see about who the person is, about, about the fact that he says he's the I am, and the phrase that he uses, and about the prophecy of his burial. John is presenting to us something. He says, hey, I want, I want you to stop and see who this Jesus is. And that is the reminder I want us to uh, come back to again and again, even this morning as we remember the Lord. And that we be caught up in the glories of Jesus Christ. Nothing else matters. So therefore, in John chapter 20, verse 30 and 31, this is what John writes. Many other signs, therefore, Jesus also performed in the presence of his disciples, which are not written in this book, but these have been written that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing you may have life in his name, that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. So when you start to read John, I want you to stop to see the immense, uh, uh, the tremendous uh, force of words that he's trying to put. So we'll, we'll quickly go through what we have here, all right? So what we, what, what we start off and we look at John, I want you to understand, John doesn't start with Bethlehem or the narration of his birth. Did you notice that? He presents Jesus as an adult Jesus. But what, what John does is he doesn't begin with, the begin, with Bethlehem, he begins with the beginning. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God. The, the way he begins it, everybody would make, uh, Jews can easily make the connection, what John is trying to say. Uh, so what the scholars would say for this passage that we've read is called the prologue. The prologue. Prologue is like setting a context for the text that is to follow. Prologue is explaining. You know, when you meet somebody and you, you, some of the questions you ask, what's your name? Where are you from? What do you do? John is just telling us that. He's telling us that. And so he introduces, in the beginning was the word, and the wo- word was with God. Introduces the word logos. The interesting thing about this word logos is this. Whether the Greeks or the Jews, they read it, they understood uh, what Logos is. They knew uh, what John was trying to do is take them from the known to the unknown. When the Greeks read Logos, it's there in their literature. It's, it's, uh, Logos, they've understood it to be their divine logic. You see, the Logos is the word where we get the word logical from. They recognized when they looked at all of creation, they realized that there is a divine logic behind it. There is a designer behind it. There's there's a basis. Something has created it. And they believed it to be Logos. And then the Jews would read it. When the Jews would read it, they would see that it connected with Genesis 1 because God said, right? When the prophets would say, what would the prophets say? This is the word of the Lord. The word of the Lord was important. The word of the Lord. And in trying to do that, what the Jews would do is they are personifying the word. They were saying that this can be seen as 
personified. In, in Proverbs 8, they see wisdom being personified as in given a personhood. Not a person, but a personification. So the, the Greeks would look at it an impersonal force that created the universe. And the Jews are willing to give this word, a personify it, so that they recognize that, oh, this is what Logos is all about. But what John does is he takes that word and he presents to us something more unique. What he's saying is that these, this word, the logos, that you thought about is Jesus of Nazareth. He's saying it's not just an impersonal person. It's not just personified, but he is a person. He is a person. In the beginning, in the beginning, was the word, and the word was with God. And so right at the beginning, this is what he was, what John starts with. He says, Logos was eternal. In the beginning, the word was is it eternal, that he was pre-existent. He, he wasn't part of the creation. He was there before, that in the beginning, the, he, the word was with God. There's coexistence that there was relationship between this word and, and that the word was God, that he is self-existent. He was pre-existent, he was co-existent, and that he is self-existent. This logos that you've thought about, that you've heard about, is actually something that was somebody who was there before, all this that you've seen, and that's the one I want to present to you, Jesus Christ of Nazareth. And then he goes on to give seven titles about Jesus Christ. He says, he's the word, he's the light, he's the lamb of God, he's the son of God, he's the Christ, he's the king of Israel, he's the son of man. And the list goes on about who Jesus Christ is. But what John is saying, this divine person when you get to John 14, that he became flesh. He became flesh. This divine logos, who was pre-existent, co-existent, and self-existent, has now become flesh and dwelt among us. That this person, uh, that's the, that's the, that's the, probably the aha that the Greeks and uh, the Jews would have had. It says, well, really? That was God? That God? And he continues to explain later, and that's the phenomenal thing that I want you to understand when you read through John. That this pre-existent, co-existent, self-existent logos is Jesus of Nazareth, and he presents to us one person in two natures, as we've done this study uh, earlier this year. Uh, and what he does, therefore, as he goes, John goes ahead, he brings, calls witnesses, as it were, to say that I want to show to you that this Jesus Christ is fully God and also fully man. That's, the, that's, what they decide, that's what they said in the Council of Chalcedon. Not 100% man, 100% God. That doesn't make sense. It's fully God and fully man. And he goes about presenting to us about 
this Jesus Christ. So I want you to stay with me as, I, as we go through this, all right? So one is John's personal testimony. He gives himself as one of the witnesses. John chapter 1, verse 14, And the Word was made flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld His glory as the glory of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. He also brings in three Old Testament witnesses. One is that of Moses. In Exodus 33, this is, this is by the time when, when um, uh, the nation of Israel had sinned. And God had said that I'm not going to go with you anymore. And Moses had to take the tent and place it outside of the camp. And it was called the tabernacle of the meeting, the meeting place. Or, or no, they had to go outside the camp to do it. And it's during that time Moses says, God, I want to see your glory. And anybody would have said, really, Moses? Just now you saw that God in his glory is about to destroy us. And you want to see his glory. Moses understands uh, the phrase beauty of holiness, as it were. He understands that, yes, the holiness is a terror when you're in sin, but that holiness becomes a beautiful thing to the saint. And so he desires to see the holiness of God, and God says, come up, I'll show you my goodness. And it's at that point where you see this tabernacle is outside of the camp. But when John says that in John chapter 1, verse 14, he became flesh, the word there is that he tabernacled among us. He's among us. This theme, the, the Christmas theme for this year is Emmanuel, God with us. God with us. Oh, that we would understand that phrase, God with us. What does that really mean? It will take his eternity. And then... He also gives us Abraham as another witness. In, in John chapter 8, verse 56, this is what is written. John 8, 56. Your father Abraham rejoiced that he would see my day, and he saw it, and he was glad. Your father saw my day. He says, hey, Abraham was witness to the fact that, that I will one day come incarnate in the flesh. And then he adds, Jesus adds, truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. I am. They understood. They picked up stones because he was equating himself to God. Abraham saw the days of Jehovah incarnate. Abraham saw the preexistent Jesus Christ. That was Abraham. And then Isaiah you get to chapter 12 of Isaiah. This morning we read from Isaiah chapter 6. This is what we read in Isaiah chapter 12 verse 41. It says, And Isaiah said these things because he saw his glory and spoke about him. This is Christ about his glories. What John is saying, the glory that Isaiah saw of the throne, of God on the throne in Isaiah chapter 6 is about the glory of Christ because he goes on to say in John chapter 1, verse 18, no one has ever seen God, but the unique one who himself is God is near to the Father's heart. He has revealed God to us. It's only through Jesus Christ, only through Jesus Christ. There's no one else, nothing else ever there. Only through Jesus Christ can we see the glory of God. Only he can grip our hearts. Only he is the one who is worthy of all praise. When the wise men came and, and bowed down, they worshipped him, no one else. 
the wise men have been worshipping Jesus Christ and him alone. He alone is worthy of praise and worship. And John is trying to increase the crescendo and draw attention and focus about this person. And he goes on to present to us seven other eyewitnesses accounts about who Jesus Christ is. And I want to quickly go through that so that we, we, we are reaffirmed in our hearts as to what John is trying to do. One is John the Baptist. In John chapter 1, verse 34, I have, and I have seen and I have borne witness that this is the Son of God. John chapter 1, verse 49, Nathaniel, Rabbi, you are the Son of God. You are the King of Israel. It's the Samaritans and the woman, the woman said, you know, he's told me all that I can, uh, all that I have done. Is this not Christ? And the Samaritan, the villages in Samaria in John chapter 4, 42, it is no longer because of what you said that we believe, that we have heard for ourselves, and we know that this is indeed the Savior of the world. Peter, the, and also the blind beggar, John chapter 9, verse 38. Lord, I believe and you, that you are the Son of Man, which is the title for Messiah, and he worshipped him. Martha, Martha, just like Peter, had this confession, for I know you're the Christ who is to come. Thomas, oh Lord, my God, and he, as he sees Jesus Christ after resurrection. John actually even brings the Godhead to witness. He brings God the Father to be a witness about him. In John chapter 5, verse 31 and 32, If I alone bear witness about myself, my testimony is not true. There is another who bears witness about me, and I know that the testimony that he bears about me is true. The Father as a witness is in John chapter 5, verse 37. And the Father who sent me has himself borne witness about me. The Holy Spirit as a witness, John chapter 15, verse 26 to 27, he will bear witness of me. What John is trying to say is just this. Listen, I want you to have no doubt about who this person is. I want you to have no doubt that this Logos who created the world, the one for, to whom the Old Testament prophets have given and understood the glories of Christ, is the one in our midst tabernacled as Jesus of Nazareth. That we would be clear of that. And he goes on to give more witnesses. But what John also does alongside is that saying that Jesus is his deity, but he also shows Jesus as a man in his humanity. I'll quickly read some of the verses that we have. John chapter 1, verse 14, the word became flesh. John chapter 4, verse 6, Jesus grew tired. John chapter 11, verse 30, 35, Jesus wept. John chapter 13, verse 27, Jesus was troubled in his soul. John chapter 17, Jesus prays to the Father. John chapter 19, verse 20, 28, Jesus got thirsty. Jesus of Nazareth was fully man. Fully God, fully man. The, one of the 
verses that really caught my attention is in John chapter 1, verse 49 to 50, 51. We, we, we did cover this uh, at some point in time, but it's a good reminder. If you will turn to John chapter 1, reading from 49 to 51. Uh, Nathaniel answered him and says, Rabbi, you are the son of God. You are the son of God. You are the king of Israel. Jesus answered him saying, because I said to you, I saw you under the fig tree. Do you believe you will see greater things than these? And he said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, you will see the heaven open and the angels of God ascending and descending on the son of man. As only Jesus Christ could, who holds with, with one hand the title that he is the son of God and with the other that he is the son of man. Fully man and fully God. He, therefore, is the only one who can save. He, therefore, is the only one worthy of praise. And, uh, and it's ironic that only John would give the entire title uh, that was on the cross about uh, on the cross uh, of Jesus Christ. And this is what it said. He says, Jesus of Nazareth, King of the Jews. Jesus of Nazareth, King of the Jews. Do you see the two aspects of it? Jesus of Nazareth, Nazareth from where no good can ever come. The, the one who in his hum, humiliation, that he would associate himself with, with Nazareth. He was just a carpenter. He had no land. He wasn't a farmer. He had no cattle because those are all terms of economy at those times. He was just a carpenter. Jesus of Nazareth. But he was also the king of the Jews, the prophesied one. So I think the question we have to ask is just this, right? What does he mean to me today? What does he mean to you today? What is that really, how does that equate? Do I acknowledge him alone to be the one who is worthy of all my praise, all, my, all that I have and all that I am. Because in John chapter 12, verse 32, I want you to see what John is saying. He says, if I'm lifted up from the earth, I will draw all men to myself. We, we've, again, we've done this in Luke chapter 15. I be, uh, there is that phrase in verse 2, I believe it says, this man receives sinners and dines with them. That was the accusation they had of Jesus Christ, of, uh, about, about him. Jesus, who is the Logos, now made manifest in the flesh that he would receive sinners and dine with them. And therefore, you and I are here today gathered under his name because he received sinners. He alone can receive sinners. So I'm not sure really among us, because I don't know your heart, but I beg of you, as you hear the the world news, and as the days are fast approaching, I don't want you to be deceived to ever think that, hey, everything is okay. Examine your faith. Lest you be one of those knocking on the door and says, Lord, let me in. And the Lord would say, I knew, knew you not. For each one of us here, we would ask that honest question. Nothing, nothing, nothing is worth anything that we have 
except recognizing the, the, the depravity of our sin, the utter depravity, that we have nothing in us, nothing that we can do to ever, ever win us favor, but that he, the logos, the, the pre-existent, the co-existent, the self-existent one would come and tabernacle among us. We, what hope, what other way would we have if you reject him, if you say no to him? And so I hope no one does that. But I also want to say that because of that, he is our high priest who can empathize with us. And I know as many of you go through life storms, there's no other place we can go to except to him. And we are thankful we can go to him because my God walked in my shoes. He understands my heart. He can empathize with my weakness, but does not leave me there. He says, come up hither. I'll show you what great things I have for you. That we, would, we can go to him, we can say in our brokenness and find grace in the time of need. That's who my God is. That's who our God is. But also let his life be an example John presents it so beautiful. And again, these are reminders of fresh. Again, you see, right at the beginning, John had said, and uh, uh, John the Baptist had said that, you know, the one who comes after me, the shoelace I cannot, I, I'm unworthy to open. And of John the Baptist, it's been said, there's no one born greater, uh, no, one, no one born who is greater than who was born of woman. And that John is saying, I, I can't even open the shoelace. But you get to John chapter 13, where it says there, when he, when he knew that the Father had given him all things, he rose up from the table, he rose up from supper, took, took off his outer garment, puts on the towel, and he washes the feet of his disciples. The one, the day before his final day on this earth, he becomes the servant who, as it were, takes, opens the shoe latchet of his disciples to wash his feet the great Logos. So the demand on our lives is this, that if we were to say that we are his followers, that we will be feet washers of his people. That we will bear each other's burdens. That we will, we will be there to support. We will there, be there to provoke them to good works, as Hebrew puts it. Provoke that I will invest my life into you, not to be walking as if we're walking on eggshells. Brothers and sisters, it's time is done. Let's not just fool ourselves. Let's get real with this fact that unless I hold you, unless you hold me, as Galatians 6 would tell us, that it's likely that we can fall. And that God has placed us in this community of faith so that we can be encouraging and edifying and building each other up. And so our lives would be to that. And that, and that he alone is enough. John, through his I am, he says, I'm the bread of life. I'm the light of the world. I'm the door of the sheep. I'm the good shepherd. I'm the resurrection. I'm the truth, the, the way, the truth, and the life. Like John is saying, what else do you need? Where else do you want to go? 
do you not have enough in this person called Jesus Christ? So why then, why then do we not, uh, you know, invest our lives into him? Like John was enamored by this person called Jesus Christ. Why are we not, why is it that we are not able to read his love letters? Why is it that we are, find it difficult to spend time with him? Why is it that, that if our, we act as if our best life is lived on this earth here? Why is it that we are not increasingly becoming like one we adore? So John presents to us this Jesus of Nazareth, King of the Jews, the Son of God who is also the Son of Man. The song that we sing often, Oh, what mystery, meekness, and majesty. Bow down and worship. For this is your God. This is your God. May he be our God in our lives, not just in a decision that we took some years ago, but every day. May he be the, the purpose for our life. Because John was saying that you may know that he is the Son of God, Christ the Son of God. That our lives would reflect that. John fell in love with Jesus. Let us also fall in love with him. Our closing prayer. Father, we thank you for, thank you, Lord, for a quick understanding of what John was able to learn from you and through you and in you. A disciple who was the son of thunder, who was, who became the, the disciple of love, the transformation, he realizes there's nowhere else, nothing else, but only in Jesus Christ. And through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, as he presents to us, we pray, Lord, that if there's anyone here who has not fully understood what it means to have this person as the Lord and Savior of their life, today may be the day that they would come and saying, that, Lord, I'm sorry, I, I, I can't live this life. I give it to you so that you would live in me. As Paul had said, I, it is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life that I now live, I live by the faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. We pray for each one of us, Lord, as we go through these trying times and this 2015 has been and as we were reminding ourselves. We pray that we would find grace and much grace, that we would be inviters of to, uh, calling others to come and get this, this water of life, this, this, this clamoring in to come to the throne of grace and bring them along, that we would, we would not be so selfish about what we have received in you, but we would be the ones who would be the heralders, as John was to us, that we would be to others. And Lord, for the, so much of work that remains to be done in, in this area that, that you have placed us. Father, we pray that you would be glorified. This light would not be a flicker, but, but would shine a bright for your glory and your glory again uh, alone. And this we pray in your name and for your glory. And all God's people said, Amen.